What's up, monsters? Hope you guys are having a good summer, doing your vacations, dealing with the kids out of school and all that. This is the Bad Christian Podcast. I'm going to just tell you and remind you to join Emeryland, get our new music. We got new music coming out. We got a new EP that Emeryland members will get in just a couple of weeks. We're working up to the deadline now. And uh, we got tour dates with Hawthorne Heights and O Sleeper. So you got to check that out. Emerymusic.com. What? I don't know. You know how to use the internet. Today's show is sponsored by Stamps.com. You get a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. We can go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter our code. Bad Christian. Here we go. Oh, hell yeah. God showed up. I don't give a shit what I put in my body. You don't ever talk to me that way. <laughs> so if you've never done oral, then you're extrovert. No, girl. It's my pleasure. I, I showed my dad that. my penis when I was 25 years old. You don't get more honest than that. Three, two, one. We wonk, need wonk, some wonk, fresh wonk, beats wonk, from wonk, my main man, Matt Carter. Wonk, wonk, oh, wonk, nice. Wonk, wonk, he wonk, went wonk, 1990 wonk, Southern wonk, California. That's <laughs> <laughs> Bad Christian Podcast. Ooh, that makes me more nervous than anything. Somebody's telling me to do something like that, but I'll do it. You Joey went, you went straight here. to like a Dr. Dre beat from the you know, the Chronic. That was just exactly where that's where your head went immediately. That's is where my the, head always is. Is with the that's chronic. the rap music. Oh, that's always with the Chronic. <laughs> okay, so Joey's not here today. He had a uh, he booked an interview with a pastor guy that some people think is a really progressive and dangerous and heretical guy. That's yeah. the types we like to have on. Yeah. Um, but Joey is ill. The, the boy is just ill. So we're going to do this uh, episode, and he'll join us later or tomorrow or next week or well, whatever. I, I, was, I was thinking about this, and I wanted to talk about it just for a second because I don't think there's any reason not to explain this. The, the same way as Joey has told me before, depression is like a broken leg or whatever mm-hmm. joey is having a rough time with mm-hmm. his depression and that's why he's not here today well he's and yeah. He's, yeah. and so i it, there's nothing weird strange or it shouldn't be embarrassing or or uncomfortable to talk about because he's told me for sure and, and i think some other people as well it's like you know you have to take care of yourself when you're going through this stuff and that's what joey's doing he's doing the right thing he's taking the day off and I don't, I'm not saying this stuff to embarrass him. I'm not saying it to diminish it, but I think sometimes we get a little bit caught up in the idea of, uh, let's not talk about it. It's because it's, we're, we're talking about the brain and emotions and low feelings and all this stuff. But at the same time, I want us to talk more about it. So we are, it's, it becomes more normalized and not oh, embarrassing or not something that we don't talk about. This is something that if you're struggling with depression, talk to people about it. Just like Joey talked with us, talk to some close friends. And I know we're telling a lot of people here, but I'm, I'm saying this because I don't want people to think, uh, I don't, I, I get, I don't understand depression because nobody talks about it enough. And I, I, sometimes I feel like when I'm on the podcast, I'm asking Joey questions and I love Joey to death. He's not the best at explaining things. And that's why we probably should have some more, uh, you know, some, uh, maybe some professors or some people come on. But what I want to say is I know Joey's going through something real and it's really tough right now. And he's going to be okay. We hope. And I, I think he will be. And, um, I, w- I want to talk about it more normally, so it's not so stigmatized yeah. or weird, or, or or we can't talk about it. like we have to. If like this is something that is really happening. Well, I wasn't thinking we'd talk about it, but that's kind of interesting now to say it. So let's talk about it. But I said he was ill, yeah, and that's true. Which is true. That, yeah. that, so would it be true? Do people say this? Is this out there? Is this a tweet or a quote or something? 
mental illness is physical illness is what I want to say. Is that uh, true? If it, it definitely manifests Ill. itself like, that way. His brain some... is physical though. Like your right. brain is largely physical and your depression. I mean, it is a physical illness if it's a mental illness. I'm not saying that that justifies right. everything. I mean, on the other hand, I am a person that feels that that type of thing is over-leaned into, over-diagnosed, over-used as excuses, and it sometimes leaves a person on the other end, I don't know another way to say it other than weak, Yeah, because it can become a crutch, which I have a problem with. In this case, I don't. I talked to Joey today, and it is obviously clear he should not be on the podcast today. Yeah. He is ill. This is one of those days. That's yeah. completely And, and that's fine. what I'm saying. We want to support him. We want him to get rested. Mm-hmm. Whatever he needs to do mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of those things, we want him to do the same way as if something else is like another illness. Right. If he had another illness, we would say the same thing. So that's what I'm saying. I, I'm not – I. I want to be clear. I don't want to diminish how bad this is. This is bad. Well, talking to Joey, I know he's in bad shape, not in a good spot right now, and we want to do everything we can, spend time with his family, whatever he can do. But yes, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, I, I I'm, wanted, just, I'm yeah. thinking that um, there's something on the thing of just putting it total in the physical category that does rub me the wrong way in another sense because it it's like other illnesses, you don't just accept them as kind of permanent and part of your identity. Like, you have a broken arm, you don't... It it is that way. It's true. You have a broken arm, and nobody's mad at you for it. And nobody's mad at anybody for mental illness. You should not be, of course. However, what's the question is, how do we remedy the thing? Like, if you break your arm because you always ride dirt bikes, then yeah, but you have to stop riding dirt bikes after that. Yeah. Or something. Like, it's, you know... uh, well, I think Does Joey would say he's tried everything. The, or the territory where everybody's taking mental health days all the time. Like, is that, are we worried about that? Or we just need to get better at accepting that? I'm not sh- well, certain. I, I was thinking about that thought the other day. Should we lie and muscle through, but no, at the same right? time, if you don't, if you feel sad, you shouldn't go to work. Should, should we have always had mental health days? Was one, the, one, one thought I had, like one of the things, and this is why I want to talk about this. I want you never like before think about to me it seems like and i might be wrong seems like a mental health day has probably been loosely talked about hey i just need a day for myself i just need a day off you know whatever it's probably always been talked about that way but now we're actually labeling it mental health day but i'm wondering if it's if it's like a thing where nobody ever really gave permission and it does seem like wait a minute you just you don't like i in in the past it's just been looked at as like oh you just want a day off because you don't you need a day off or what? Like you're not sick. You're not on vacation. Mm-hmm. What, why are you taking a day off work or whatever? And the idea here is maybe this is something that should have always have been. And maybe we push so much that everybody it now, maybe it's exploding. Everybody goes, what I'm thinking is maybe depression and all this stuff has probably always been around, but nobody talked about it. And now since people are talking about it, you, everybody's like, Oh yeah, I've always felt that way. Yeah. Or I've always had that. Yeah. It's now, just you know what I mean? Slippery that way. Like for it, instance, in this case, it's so organic. It's just our friend Joey and all we're doing is talking. And when I talk to him right. and he needs a break. If you need a break because you stayed up late last night, fine. I, I mean, this is right. organic. Like we don't. Right. It's no big deal here. We you missed you missed a podcast it. with a hangover. Yeah, I missed a podcast. If I have a bad hangover. I'm sick. Right. What do you want me right. to do? I mean, like, okay. There's no judgment about these things. Right. You, know? you didn't mean but, to get a hangover. You didn't. All that's yeah. the same as Joey. That's right. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. And maybe what you even described it the way I think it is. Sure. It is illness. It is sick. Like a, it's a, the way he even describes it is this sick, empty feeling right. inside of him. And he, you know, he's he can't uh, control certain things. But yeah. what do you yes. what do you do about such a thing if it becomes 
permanent or easy to fall into or a good excuse because that also will happen. It is true, and it's also true that it it could become a crutch that would be hard to get out of in in, this, in that way. Like if I got a hangover, yeah. if I had a hangover forty five weeks a year uh, or thirty at uh, a fifty episode. I mean, there's a limit to where you go. Well, that's yeah, I understand, but you can't. Yeah, this is you know. So there has to be a way that you improve. I mean, the main thing I feel about depression is we're in desperate need of better technology because it it can't be something that everybody gets and then you manage. But by manage, you mean it stays the same the rest of your life. That right. That's not – I can't accept that. I'm not saying I can't accept it from the people that are experiencing it. The fact that people experience a permanent broken arm, if that is what it is like, is unacceptable. The, right. Like this is an emergency, I would say. Not Joey, but Joey no, yeah, obviously yeah. represents just so many people. It's just so obvious that that's well, true. That's unacceptable to me that we don't have better – technology or something for treat the treatment is a joke is it's it's and it may be just enough to keep people going but it it keeps i mean all it does is keep you going which is i'm glad because some people wouldn't be around if they didn't have treatment but good gosh the treatment seems like not good enough it's not this is not acceptable as a society especially because it seems that mental illness is on the rise i do think more people are going to have it or more people have it than say it. And it probably does feel like that, and there's nothing they can do, and the treatment isn't so good. So it's relatively bleak in that sense to me. All right. Uh, my time is just so valuable, and one of the things that I have found like a hack, one of those life hacks is with stamps.com because no one really has time to go to the post office. I'm busy. You're busy. There's traffic. Seriously, lugging around all the packages, all of that, it's just a real hassle. So that's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates the post office, trips to the post office, rather, and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day stamps.com can handle that all with ease you got your side hustle going you need to ship out some stuff trust me i know about side hustles and stamps.com is awesome so here's what i want you to do right now our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment seriously all you have to do is go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in bad christian that's stamps.com enter bad christian yeah, like it feels like there's you, you, we're throwing darts at it, and yeah. sometimes it works. I know some people medication works great. Some people diet and exercise. Where you know there, there's definitely things that are working, and Joey for sure has tried a lot of stuff. But one of the things that I have really been thinking about is when th- this is why I wanted to just talk about it in in a normal way because it, if everybody has it, just like a what was the. Uh, Podcast or the radio show I went on the Jesse Lee. Uh, what was this last? Lee always is it Jesse Lee Peterson? Yeah, and he's like, up. you say that. He said, you, that's normal. You think that's normal? And uh, but I was like, but depression is normal right now, right? Like it, it's pretty it, normal. Yeah, it, I'm saying people want to. Uh, you, you have to hear how I'm saying it. It happens normally. There's some. Uh, you probably could talk to ten people, and a good percentage of them would have some kind of mental 
uh, issue that they're going through. Anxiety, anxiety depression. Got, I mean, it, it, we're in some crazy yes. territory. Well, high numbers, there. right? Like, right. Because they're just so it, sides of a coin right. to some degree. It seems. So it, so it is normal. And one thing that I I don't like when people talk about depression is I feel like they always talk about it like capital D depression. It's really bad. Like what I want to say is Joey's going through a really rough time right now. And we're going to get through it. He's going to get through it. He's going to do good. He's going to get better. Things are going to, and, and the same way as other stuff, like sometimes I feel like people put so much weight on depression, anxiety, and uh, that it causes like fear. The same way as, yeah, you know, the, the, yes, the, same true. way as if you, you, something, you feel something weird in your heart and you go on WebMD. Yeah. You're like, oh God, I'm definitely am dying. The, yeah. the more I'm you focus dying. on the problem, yeah. then you become, your life begins to revolve right. around the problem. Right. But and and ignore and problem the, is not right either, but there's, a, there's certainly a balance there. And the internet tells you the worst stuff about depression. And also people, when they hear the word, they just kind of want to avoid it. Oh, I'm really sorry. Oh, man, I'm, that's really bad. You're going to. Sometimes that is needed, but also it's needed is like, okay, this is, this is really tough. And you're having a really tough day or week or month or year, all those things. And I'm not saying muscle through. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is though, I want people to also. It, it not be the end. I feel like sometimes when people talk to me about depression, it's like this end thing where it's, it's, you know, what if it's today, Joey needs this. Today, Joey needs to not be on the podcast, and we'll figure out tomorrow, and we'll figure out the next day. But today is really maybe a dark day, a tough day. I'll let, I don't want to, you know, speak for him, and I don't, and I don't want to embarrass him, and I don't think so. I don't think I am just because I know him. This, we've, you know, been best friends forever. It's and also foundationally part of this podcast for him yes, to and say yes. embarrassing things about himself yeah. and for us. Right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yesterday at the Daily Dose, he goes at, at the very last end of the Daily Dose episode. He goes, and by the way, I'm I'm going through a horrific depression <laughs> it just yeah, ends yeah. the podcast that way so that's what i'm saying like joey talks about it a lot and we get in to talk about it a lot that's what i really appreciate like let, just talk about stuff and it's not there shouldn't be a stigma or shame or embarrassment or anything like today if somebody has depression i want them to be able to say man today is a just a really low day this is how i'm feeling this is what i'm going through and maybe i can relate some maybe i can't maybe, but that honesty there makes me understand it more that's the thing i want that's what that's what i feel like the church has dropped the ball on i think society and as a in as a whole i have so many family members that i think probably suffer with anxiety and depression and they can't even understand it like they they, yeah, they, they right. think it's something crazy right. they can't even talk about it mm-hmm. and i'm like wait a minute if we could talk about it, i could every monday mike could understand a little bit better maybe it wouldn't be the it, Sometimes it feels like, like I said, sometimes it feels like when people talk about depression, it's the worst possible thing ever. And they might be feeling that way and it might feel that way and be that way to, to the person going through that, of course. But I, I'd love to talk about it the same way as you talk about well, cancer is awful. That's a really it is awful, but you can thing. talk about cancer without shame. Mm-hmm. You can talk about cancer of like overcoming and help. Like they haven't cured cancer. They haven't cured depression, right. or anything, but you can talk about it like my Jess had breast cancer. It was super scary. We were able to talk about it. And, I, and when we first found out, I, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't grasp it. It made me mad and hurt and sad and all these different things. And then we kept talking about it, learning more and learning more. And it, then it became a easier conversation, which is what I would prefer, or just what I think would be helpful, yeah. at least to idiots like me. Yeah, there's a little bit of a gap there, but I think part of it is something you might be saying that might sound abrasive if you said it plainly, I hope not. but I think it's not so crazy of an idea. The point is, when you get to talking about depression, the person who has it is so, you feel so bad for them, and of course you know it's real and all that. Right. So it leaves you with this really strong bias to simply validate it, like fully, like over-validate how bad it must be for the, you know, it's, a, it's almost like cheap in a way to just say, oh, you poor thing, it's, it must be so bad, I can't imagine, 
and take all the time you need. Like, yes, right. that can be true, but also that's the easiest thing to say. Right. There's nothing easier from the point of view of the hearer or the responder than that. Anything other than that would be much more difficult to say, hmm, I wonder how, like, I know this person really well. Is that what they need to hear right now? I don't know that it always is. Now, it would, of course, right. I don't think you should be tough on people or tough love, but I do believe that, like, in almost everything in our environment that we live in, we make fun of everything, including depression, which a lot of people wouldn't. It shouldn't be the case that if somebody has a mental illness, it's some weird, uh-oh, taboo. Now we can't talk about it. I can't criticize you. I can't right. joke with you anymore. I can't question it. You have to be able to. Otherwise, you, play, you put kid gloves on or something. It, it can't right. be kid gloves. It has to be what would be best for this person. It, yeah. Not, I'll leave them alone and make sure I don't make them uncomfortable so I don't want to be a bad guy. So I, just, I hope you're good. Leave me alone. Okay, see you later. You know, you know right. I validate you. It, it, that's maybe a little short-sighted, I think, is, is all I'm saying. We over-diagnose, we over-identify, we over-validate, maybe, yeah. as a bias. I don't know the way out of that. But you think that's right? Yeah, I think you're right. And it's funny when you said it that way, too. Like, I was just thinking, you wouldn't – I've heard people talk, you know, either to Joey or some other friends, family members that I have that – have anxiety, depression. Um, and you're right. If you like, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. But like, it really does almost diminish what they're going through. Like, Oh, you know, they're like, you wouldn't say that to somebody that had can't, Oh, you have cancer. I'm so sorry. That's just, you know, like it diminishes how bad it is. Like it, it, it I, that's I what I don't want to do. I, person. That's right. just, oh, I know, I know. Baby. I knew some, you know, I knew somebody that had cancer person. one time. It's, it's bad. Yeah. It, I knew somebody had cancer one time. They, you know, they they did pretty good. So you know, Poor if you thing, do bless good, bless your too. heart. Yeah, yeah. That 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 is such a talking down mm-hmm. to somebody. You're gonna like beat what, the fucking thing. Right. We're gonna do like, this, okay? Like, uh, right. all right. We're gonna work on this. I mean, whatever. So it today, takes. today I thought was really good because you talked to Joey. Joey tried to call me. I was on the phone anyway. We talked, and Joey explained what's going on, and had a real conversation about depression, and then made a plan about what to do. Mm-hmm. That that's the most real interaction you can have with like Joey. What do you need us to do? What do you want to do? Let's how can we work together or not work together? You know whatever you want to do. And then we had a real conversation. And it wasn't uh, you know of course we care about him and of course we were gentle maybe or loving and all of those things. I hope. But the the bigger thing there was I felt like we actually able to talk to Joey in a way that was beneficial to him and it didn't like. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't shameful. It's not shameful now. It's not. It shouldn't be embarrassing. It shouldn't be anything. It's just. Oh, this is what's going on with Joey. This is how we can help our friend. Right. How do you need us to help you? What can we do? Do you you want us to talk to you? Don't want us to talk to you? Whatever you want. We, we you know we can figure that out and, and move on and do work and all yeah. of these things. What's we not can, helpful? We can do it. Is when somebody pretends not to be depressed for three weeks and when you know they are anyway. Right. And then you're like, well, uh, not only are they <laughs> right. not themselves because of depression, but they're also not telling the truth, which is very obvious if for some right. people that can tell. when, <laughs> like If you know somebody well or you're a perceptive person, either way, you know when somebody's not telling the truth. And if it's your friend right. and you know he's depressed, then what do you do? What, what, what are we doing now? You know? Right. That's not helping anybody to no. do that. No, it's not at all. Like I just, I, it, 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 yes, that's the, back to my point. The big overall point here is I want anybody that's, that that suffers is going through depression, any of this mental illness or whatever, to be able to talk freely about it and it not be embarrassed. I want us to m- more normalize the discussion because it just for way too long nobody talked about it. And I was like, oh, this 
what's going on with this person? Like, you know, like with Joey, we didn't talk about it for a long time. And I didn't know now to his credit, he didn't understand how to explain it. We're sure, talking 1990. Sure. This, 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 and he, and he's, he's come a long on. way, a long way for sure. But I just, I want it to be that way because I, it's, it's not embarrassing to me. What I, what happened, what is going on with Joey today? I, I don't, I'm not embarrassed for him or think he's embarrassed or he's lazy or weak or bad or all this. This is something that he's going through. The same way as other stuff, like he's told me, like, it, it, what do you do with a broken arm? You, have, you know, all the, what, the analogies he's used in the past and metaphors, or whatever. Uh, I, I want to take that as true. Okay, this is a real thing. Our friend Joey called us. He has a real thing going on, and we're going to help him. Yeah, so I think we yeah. should always talk about it and be prepared to really talk about it and get tough. Like, toughness uh, is more needed. Not mean, but toughness. Right. Toughness, like, you're going to talk about it. Even if you're depressed and you're going to tell people and you can be tough in the fact that you're going to talk about it, yes. And you're, yeah. you're going to be tough in the fact that you can say, I can't go to work today. I'm not going to. I'm going to bust my ass to as soon as I can. Like, that's like, I'm not going to work. I can't. And right. I'm going to aggressively pursue getting back when I can yeah. be honest with myself yeah. and say that I yeah. am ready, not pretend I'm ready. So I, I love just, that. Uh, be, yeah. be tough for yourself, tough too. For your, that, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hey, you deserve that. Joey, you move, Joey isn't trying to it. bail out on work today or what, he would, he would, we have Brian Zahn coming on. This is like, it, it, it's his dream guest. <laughs> and I mean, he's not going to be here today. So he, he wants to be. It's not so, but that's he right. is being tough for himself and saying, this is what I got to do. This is what yeah. I need to do. And, and yeah. that makes all the difference. I respect him calling and saying he can't do it and why more than muscling through to last oh, week yeah. or whatever. Come on with that. Anyway, let's do good honor by him and try to do a good interview today and represent him and ourselves right. and talk to Brian Zahn. So Brian is a uh, pastor. People think he's a progressive pastor. Uh, he's going to be on in a few minutes, so we'll keep talking yeah. until he joins. We'll just keep rolling. But he, I'll tell you about him, what I got. He's a full-time pastor. He's an author. His latest book's called Postcards from Babylon. He started a church in 1981 um, and has written a, several books. The one that Joey has read, I haven't read it, uh, is Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. So that's where we're going to talk about some of the stuff around that tonight, um, and uh, we'll get to it. So to set that up, though, I saw a tweet yesterday when Joey it was explaining the guest to me um, that it really reminded me of. So I want to talk about this topic, and then we'll get Brian's thoughts on it when he joins in a little bit, because I think that this is in his territory. But I saw a tweet from, it was like Pew uh, Research. Uh, he tweeted this, to, he tweeted it as well. Who did? Brian Zahn. I, uh, I, thought, I, sent, I thought I sent it to you. I'm sorry. Oh, good. Uh, he had already had yeah. tweeted the same tweet that I had. Let me see. How do, how do you find a favorite yeah, the, tweet? The, I've got one. The Pew Research Bookmark. one. I got it. Okay. So I got this from David French, who retweeted it from Pew Religion Research. So Pew Foundation or Pew Research. You know who they are. All right. I find this shocking. Not I don't find it shocking, but it brings up some real... It makes me ask different questions, almost just changing the way I frame the way I look at Christianity, as if as if I needed more reframing yeah. of how I think of Christianity at this point. Um, okay. Hey, and, while, and before you do that, this is what Brian Zahn tweeted about this. He says, has white evangelicalism reached the point where it is now more successful in producing disciples of Donald Trump than in producing disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, that's he, well put. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And then and he, he uh, link, links the, that, that the Pew Research religion. Yeah. Good, good, good. Well, he said that better than I could have said it, but I'm gonna. But the information he's basing that, what he said off of, is pretty compelling. Now, this is the percentage of people in the U.S. who say that the U.S. has 
responsibility to accept refugees, period, meaning at all. Yeah. Religiously unaffiliated people, people that ha- say, I am not religious at all, 65% of those people say that we have some obligation to accept refugees. Not determining what that is. Sur- surely we're not talking about open borders. And we're not even talking about immigration, but refugees. So I hope everybody, I don't think that needs much more explanation. People yeah. seeking asylum for their life with their children. Whatever the case may be, the, the people that say no to this mean no responsibility regardless of the situation. In responsibility, they now I'll be fair. They probably think, but there's also charitable organizations that could help people. Blah blah blah. But they just think, you know, America or the government or the right. nation. So I'll leave them some gray area. But nonetheless, this is disturbing to me. Sixty-five percent of religiously unaffiliated people, uh, black Protestant, sixty-three percent. So basically the same there. Catholic people. So now we're into, yeah, so the black Protestant, very high there, or not, I don't know if you say it's very high or not, Catholic, 50%. White mainline Protestant, 43%. And then we round out the people who care officially the least about refugees or think we have the least responsibility with white evangelicals at 25%, meaning that 75% of white evangelicals believe that we have no responsibility to help anybody uh, outside of our borders if it might mean they would have to cross our borders to come here. That doesn't mean that they have no care for people that live outside the borders. Certainly they well, have a point of view, but nonetheless, yeah. that's disturbing. No? They just love the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what is there to make of that? It, it, it's, it's horrific. It's horrifying. The idea that it, yeah, that our borders and our country and our, and, and being, you know, nationalistic is more important than love and care and, uh, helping and saving yeah, people's lives. It makes lives. me fundamentally rethink the nature of like what was the, what it makes me think, hang on a second. It seems like the Christianity part is secondary, secondary to that group to me. That's that's oh, the, it's like oh yes. the Christian part is secondary. There's something else that's more important, and the the, the Christianity part is somewhat of a vehicle or an, uh, for their agenda, right? Is what that seems yeah. to start to make me uh, want to think about it from a different point of view, like in a little bit. Okay, got a really good sponsor for you here. Um, this one is pleasant even on the ears. Reva, why don't you kick that oh sleeper music? This is a song called Fissure. All right, so at this very moment, you're listening to a song called Fissure. It's a single from the new O Sleeper record, and you love O Sleeper because, I mean, you know why. You listen to this record, you've heard the last ones. This is the this record's called Bloodied Unbowed, and it's out now. And it's the cool thing about it is it's their first record they put out since 2011, so quite a gap. But we're very, very happy to have them back and the first release of any kind at all since 2013. So. It's a comeback record, which is exciting. So pre-order bundles are still available, so there's a bunch of cool stuff there. It's osleeper.merchnow.com. Lots of vinyl options as well. Also, the band 
as I mentioned, have mentioned before on this podcast, is going to be on tour through July and August because we're going to be on tour with them, we, Emory. So head over to the O Sleepers Band is in Town page to see if they're going to be in your town. But if you're in California or Texas or maybe in between there, uh, we will be. And with Hawthorne Heights to boot, so it's going to be fun. So follow the band, Spotify, and Apple Music pages. Check out Bloodied Unbowed, available everywhere now. And go check out the Label Podcast. I just did an hour conversation with Micah that gets into the details of their band, their hiatus, what this music and the lyrics are about. Uh, it's a lot of good stuff there. So that's the Label Podcast. But again, O Sleeper, Bloodied Unbowed, available everywhere now. Oh, it looks like we have Brian join. Brian, I didn't see you pop yeah. in there. Are you? Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me fine? Yes. Yes, I can. I, I can. Let me get you on the screen better. So, okay, so you can see and hear us fine. Actually, your video looks yep. terrific. What are you, a yeah, professional it really does. over there? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Skype has that feature that blurs the background and makes it look like yeah, you're you in a documentary great. right now. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the lighting turned out to work out right, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm comfortable hearing you now, so we'll just keep keep on rolling. Toby and I were having a conversation. Our co-host, Joey, is out ill today. In fact, it's a mental health day, to be, to be specific. Uh, and he's the one that was so excited to book. He booked this interview. He loves sinners in the hands of a... Uh, uh, Loving God, uh-uh. and uh, I, I don't know if you had talked to him a little bit before, but uh, I, we're Toby and I've been caught up on it and and been looking at it a little bit. And I, I don't know if you just heard, but we were talking about that tweet that you retweeted with the Pew Research there. So yeah. we can just yeah, start I, in there. Yeah, I heard what you were talking about. Um, think about this moment of unintended truth telling. Church lawns of often evangelical churches that like to fly flags on their front lawn. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, budget's tight. They only got one flag pole, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they have two flags they want to fly. They have the American flag and the so-called Christian flag. Now, admittedly, I'm not real keen on the so-called Christian flag. It's obvious. It's not ancient iconography. It's a conflation of Christian symbol and America symbol. But let's set that aside. Let's take it in good faith as to what it's to represent. That is Christian faith. How are the flags always, without exception, arranged on the flagpole? Mm-hmm. American flag on top, Christian flag subordinate. What are they saying? They are saying. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we, we like the idea of being Christians. We're, we like Jesus. Uh, in fact, we love him so much, he comes in number two. <laughs> he mm-hmm. is our penultimate deity. 
Yeah. But first is the American flag. I think that's and true. If, if, if someone says that's not the case, I say, well, then just switch them, reverse them. Well, they won't do that. And if you if you ask them about that, they'll say um, they'll say something like, well, it's illegal, to which I say, first of all, it's not. <laughs> Secondly, so what if it was? Right. I mean, that's a moment of well, I just called it unintended truth telling mm-hmm. that, you know, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Uh, America is America is a profound complexity. You, you can't talk simply about America because America is at least four things. It's a nation, a culture, an empire, a religion. It's all four of those things. Yep. As a nation and culture, it's a mixed bag, but admittedly there is much that is admirable, much that is worthy of being celebrated. Uh, there is a reason why certain aspects, anyway, of American culture is, a, is admired the world over. As an empire, things begin to become problematic for a Christian. Here's my definition of empire, because I don't want to just throw that around as an empty pejorative. What I mean by empire is rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. Mm-hmm. The reason that God loves nations with their diversity and ethnicity and all of that, but is opposed to empire, and this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. The reason God opposes empire is what empires claim for themselves is the promise that God has made to his son. Mm-hmm. That his empires claim they have a divine right to rule other nations, a manifest destiny to shape history. No, this is the promise the Father has made unto yeah. the Son. It is Jesus Christ who has a divine right to rule the nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. And then finally, um, America is also a religion, or we could say Americanism is religion, or we could say that the civil religion of America is quite obvious, uh, quite obviously a religion. I mean, with mm-hmm. well, think about it. It's got it's got its own creation myths. It's saints, it's holy days, it's hallowed ground, it's revered texts, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, The evangelical Christian that's caught up in this mess wants to pretend that there isn't a conflict. They want to pretend they can serve two masters. Mm -hmm. Jesus says you can't. In the end, when it comes right down to it, you'll, you'll serve one and hate the other. Okay, and that's that's putting it very blunt. I know, mm-hmm. but you know, I've given it a lot of thought. <laughs> yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So, so from just from your opening there, I think we can we'll introduce you a little bit and make sure everybody kind of understands who you are. You clearly hate America and God, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the starting point. That's who you no, are, right? No. <laughs> Think about this. Think about this. Jesus said. Remember, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said. Unless you hate your mother and father, mm-hmm. you cannot be my disciple. Okay, what do we say about that? Do we form a doctrine that Jesus teaches us to hate our parents? No, I mean, that's, that's his hyperbolic way of saying, if you're going to follow me, there are no rivals. And yes, we, we're, we're to hate our nation the same way we hate our parents, which means, of course, we don't hate our nation because we don't hate our parents. But it also means Jesus is Lord means something. Mm-hmm. 
And that if I have to break with my family to follow Jesus, then that's what I have to do. If I have to break with allegiance to my nation to follow Jesus, then that's what I have to do. Let's see if we can split. We're going to be highly speculative here. You're in good company. Uh, but uh, but let's speculate here because what it, I'm starting to – let's see if I can put it this way. I, I, I like to think in numbers and percentages even though I know they're not accurate. I just use them as estimates. But I've always had this feeling like when I grew up in the rural south – around evangelical Christianity. I was a mainline person, but I wasn't really buying that um, because it seemed not totally real. And then the evangelical stuff had this really goofy thing to it that didn't make sense to me. And it, it, especially in the mainline churches, it didn't seem to me that the people that went to the church really believed what the church said. Like what It was just kind of clear yeah. to me as a young person that these people just go here. They're not real. So I thought, okay, yeah. so when people say they're Christians, they're not. Maybe some of them are, though. Some people there right. did, some people didn't. And then when I moved to the West Coast and got into some, you know, Calvinistic and other movements and where religion is, Christianity is way less uh, culturally a thing, I was so stoked at that point because I was like, oh, these people yeah. are real Christians. There's no reason to go to church unless you really care. And I thought that for a period of time. And now I've, so I always thought the number of Christians is super small, like 10% of people that claim Christianity. And that was when I was in a Calvinistic phase and thinking I was one of the 10% special, you know, or something like that. But um, <laughs> Funny how I did, it always works out that way. <laughs> yeah, but I did think that. but And I, I really think that number was like 7 to 10%. I'm like, most of these people yeah. are not like me, clearly, but these people are. And that's how I was getting the number. It was like people that I identify with, essentially. But I, I still am holding on to that because I feel that, that to actually be true. So, But I have different categories for it now. So I'm thinking... That small percentage is the people that aren't either uh, agenda people or people, you know, because there's a certain amount of people that are just nationalistic and agenda driven that use Christianity as a vehicle for power or maybe even overtly or, or just necessarily or the Christianity part is along for the ride. There's also people that you say in that category that I find really compelling, which is probably the largest. And that's the ones that think they can actually serve two masters with good intentions and maybe good oh, I think that's people. the vast majority. But I they mean, really are not what I am either. So I'm not. Yeah. I'm the one who's almost convinced myself that I'm not one of them or a Christian. But today, and after thinking about this, I, I want to say no. Maybe I am, and most of the rest of them still aren't. Like that's bold and aggressive. But I'm saying yes. what Jesus said is what I'm still trying to find and stick to. And then when so I'm looking at evangelical Christianity, I'm like, wait, I don't even yeah. know if you guys are doing that. So I don't even know. What, it makes me feel crazy. Soren Kierkegaard who was dealing with a similar situation where he's in 19th century Denmark and, and nearly everybody is, quote, a Christian, uh, pushes back. He says that when it's easy to be a Christian, we can't ever quite define what it means to be Christian. When it's hard to be Christian, then nobody bothers with a definition mm-hmm. because you know because it costs you. Um, maybe we could say it this way. Uh, I, I don't like to, I don't, if someone claims to be a Christian, that is that they make a basic claim of, of you know, what is generally would considered orthodox belief and they've been baptized and they call themselves a Christian. I don't like, I just don't like to put myself in the judge, in the, in the place of judgment, say you're mm-hmm. not a Christian. What I will do though is make a distinction between being Christian and being a Christian. <laughs> to become a Christian is pretty easy. You know, you, you believe, make a confession, you're baptized, okay, you're a Christian. But the goal is not to be a Christian. 
the goal is to be Christian. That is Christ-like. And how do you define that personally? Uh, I don't know if I define it. I mean, we look carefully at the Gospels and we say, is my life aiming to look like that life of Jesus? Are there aspects of my life where my allegiance to Christ causes me to take up a cross? That is, to engage in some form of risk, uh, risk of loss, risk of misunderstanding, uh, denial, uh, laying, you know, that sort of thing. If not, then, then maybe you are simply floating along with a culture that still has a certain amount of uh, Christian assumption. Sure. Um, uh, in America, civil religion is so pervasive, so powerful, at least among a certain group of people. You know, and it varies. I mean, if you're in San Francisco, it's not as strong as if you're in Birmingham, Alabama. But, you know, it's there. Um, it's, it's easy to just kind of just assume that there isn't much of a difference between being a follower of Jesus and being just a good red, white, and blue right. patriot. So I like to ask people, I say, okay, um, do you assume that Jesus doesn't challenge any aspect of what you consider being a patriotic America? And then we begin to have the discussion. Often what comes up is Jesus' position on violence. Uh, it's reported that Mahatma Gandhi said this. I don't know. I can't ever tra- trace it down. But somebody said, maybe Gandhi said, everybody knows that Jesus taught nonviolence except Christians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just reading, reading, reading the Sermon on the Mount, the, the very minimum, you're going to say Jesus really questioned the righteous use of violence, seem to turn away from that, seem to develop an ethic where violence was not part of the program. And yet um, so many American Christians just assume that there's no, and of course I've heard all, you know, what about the, the, the swords that Jesus tells them to get? Or what about, and then they go to the Old Testament. What about Joshua's wars and all of that? Which what they're doing is they're using Joshua to save them from Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, they're using Joshua and, to resist Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So anyway, we can talk about any of that, or but those are just I, I I see it as the greatest challenge to making disciples right now in America. I've been a pastor for thirty-seven years, um, and I can tell you the greatest challenge to making disciples is the fact that most people are already thoroughly discipled into the rival religion of Americanism. And to allow Jesus or a Christ-informed ethic to challenge or critique some of their assumptions based in Americanism is a very difficult process. Would you say, um, when you say Americanism, I think you mentioned a lot of things that were patriotic, but would you say that it's not just that, that there's a, a, a great percentage of just total Western consumerism that makes up uh, the specific thing, Americanism? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the military, militarism is very militarism pronounced. Militarism and consumerism. But the militarism exists to protect our consumerism. Mm. Interesting. And, and, they're, and they're somewhat also conflated and... President Eisenhower warned us about this, the, the military-industrial complex, 
where industry, commerce, mm-hmm. consumerism would be related to that, gets worked in with our militarism as well. And this is a, this is a profound problem that we have. It, it feels like almost to me, I still don't understand the, the evangelical and the, and the Christian rights loyalty to America. Like it, it's, 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 it's almost like just blind loyalty. Loyalty has never been more clear when Donald Trump got elected and the people that just gave passes and would just really proclaim his Christianity and his good works and all of those things. It's almost as if, like I've thought about this before, it's almost as if the American dream somehow got tied together with heaven and like er, uh, like mm-hmm. a, a America is heaven and keep out the sinners yep. and we are yeah. something like that. They believe the myth that God raised up America, that, that America has a divine origin and a divine agenda. Mm-hmm. It's all a lie. Yeah. It's borderline blasphemous for those that confess that Jesus is Lord. There's like also uh, never been a nation that kind of didn't do that since Zerk. I mean, every no, no, that's, every yeah, yeah, that's, powerful person has to claim deity. That. It's, it's part of the formula to have an empire. You can't have a, a, a successful civilization without it be without the leader trying to be a deity or some pull the wool right. in some regard. Like that's part of the yeah, formula. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is what this is what lurks in the background of the Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as far as we can tell, is written in the late 90s, um, which was during the reign of Domitian. And it was not during a time of persecution. This is where people get off a little bit. They think that Revelation was written to persecuted Christians. It wasn't. It was written to Christians in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire about 30 years after there had been some intense persecutions. But things have died down now. And John the Revelator is very concerned. Well, it's in the eastern provinces that the cult of the emperor first began to emerge. And by the emperor cult, we mean, yes, they were, they were worshiping the emperor as a deity. But you have to understand what's going on in that. Uh, that is a way, that's a way of, pers- the true object of worship is the Roman Empire itself. Yeah. And then in certain folk cultures, it gets personified in the form of the emperor. But really, the, the, the true deity is the empire itself. John the Revelator is very concerned that Christians are going to get caught up in that. And so he goes to great lengths with his crazy imagination and drawing from all of these other apocalyptic images out of the Old Testament to remind them again and again and again, never forget the empire is a beast. It's beastly, and he contrasts it over and over and over with the lamb-like nature of the kingdom of Christ. So I think the book of Revelation could be the most pertinent, timely uh, book for American Christians to read, if they can read it right, which is probably not possible. <laughs> they They're don't so have the, caught up in all the left behind and Tim oh, LaHaye yeah. yeah. and John Hagee and Blood Moons and all of that. That the book that really could speak to us and help us has become obscured to us. And we, we yeah. read it through all of the wrong lenses. And that's another 
con- contributor to the tragedy. So when- that that seems like what the work of the enemy, because that's I grew up in the most you know uh, very backwoods, small denomination Pentecostal church, and all I was ever taught about Revelation was it was end times, it was about God versus Satan, and that is it. And you know, and and this guy, you know, went out of this island, wrote it, and all this stuff, and it was all, you know, all prophetic and and this stuff. And it just seems like once again we get caught up that the the Christian uh, brain gets caught in this idea of well, this is what I was told, and this is what is true, and my country is true. And but I still don't understand like what is the 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 average Christian loyalty to America. What is the what's the incentive? Is it just is it safety? Is it power? That's good. What is the incentive? I don't know. If, I don't know that they're they're not making a choice. It isn't like oh, I'm going to choose to do this. They are simply immersed in it, which is another word for mm. baptized. They're baptized into it. It's the water and they're swimming in. Fr- oh. From a child, they have been formed in the idea that America is in some way divine in origin and in destiny, and it is it is peculiar to empires. It's you know, I travel the world quite widely, and I can tell you that this is pretty much an American phenomenon. You don't really see Australian Christians doing this. You don't see Portuguese Christians doing this. You don't see, you know, Christians in Korea thinking that God is raising up their nation. They don't have that problem. Now, now Russia is a little different. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church still struggles with that. Uh, as far as conflating nationalism with um, with Christ. If, if you think American evangelicals are terrible at this, well, they're, they're, they're in kindergarten compared to the Ph.D. studies of the long history of the Russian Orthodox Church yeah. <laughs> and conflating the two. But it never ends well. Yeah. So um, it just seems from, you know, we've been struggling with this for 17 centuries. And at some point, you hope at least there's an upside to the end of Christendom or that or that a post-Christian Western phenomenon leads us to at least be Mm -hmm. post-Christendom. I think that it will be the case, but I think we're going it's it's going to die an ugly death in America. You got that right. Okay. did you ever did you ever personally believe or you were you like pro nationalist and then some you had a uh, yeah. you know come to Jesus moment or something I mean you started a church in Missouri which most people probably in the don't, 80s yeah, I don't, it could have been yeah, that I don't progressive know how you, I don't know how you question. slid this by those folks I lived in Missouri for a while they, 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 hey, let, let me t- let me tell a little the story my roots are Jesus movement there I'm you go Jesus, we love that I'm yeah. old Jesus freak and mm-hmm. so the, the Jesus movement, which was kind of, you know, it was hippies that found a better messiah than the Beatles. Do you know that they kicked <laughs> off the whole music scene that's given us our career the way do, I kind of... Do, do I know? Do I know? <laughs> I'm, I'm I asking. I'm trying it. to find the common ground here. I lived here, like, it, brother. I lived it. You know, I tell people... Tell me about it. <laughs> if, if you attend a church where they have electric guitars and drums yeah. on Sunday morning, that is the lasting legacy of the Jesus movement. We're the ones that fought the wars, and there were mm-hmm. wars. We were the ones that fought the wars to make that happen, because we're in our Baptist churches or whatever. Yep. And we say, hey, you know what? We're going to have... Uh, we want to have some drums and electric guitars for worship on Sunday morning. They said, you can't do that. They said, well, we're going to do it. We won't let you. Well, then we'll go start our own churches. And we did. Like Resurrection Band? Oh, yeah. I met those guys in Eureka Spring, Arkansas in 1979. Nice. Wow. I know Glenn Kaiser pretty well. That's great. That's and, awesome. Uh, so, so that's where I come from. 
And, and so that movement in its origin was not at all nationalistic. We were very suspicious of materialism, of yeah, war, sure. mm-hmm. carried a lot of that counterculture eth- ethos into the Jesus movement with us. But time rolls on. And eventually the Jesus movement is absorbed into the wider charismatic movement, mm-hmm, yeah. the charismatic movement. And we're talking about over, over decades now, then drifts a lot of it anyway towards word of faith and that sort of thing. And by the time I was 45, I'm 60 now, so just so for those of you keeping score at home, um, by the time I was well, by the time I was 40, I really began to feel this discontent. By the time I was 45, I just what what happened? I mean, I didn't I didn't start up as a radical Jesus freak to end up as a conservative Republican mm-hmm. with a Jesus fish on my SUV. Right. <laughs> uh, but I saw that's kind of what had happened. And then I started returning to my roots and rebelling against that and, and writing things I write today. So even though I probably had a stronger um, ballast to prevent me from really going into religious nationalism, I still drifted toward it just mm-hmm. because everything moved you in that direction. Right. You have to be fairly, if you're in any kind of spectrum of the evangelical world, you have to be very deliberately intentional not to be formed in religious nationalism because the whole thing is going to, but, well but I don't put. think there's no one sitting around planning this. Right. This isn't a sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's done in good faith. It's done with bad theology. It's not a conspiracy. Yeah, it's not a yeah. conspiracy, it's, but it's, it's done with bad theology mm-hmm. It's done with an unwillingness to really take Jesus on his own terms and allow him to critique the world. <laughs> um, but it happens. And But some are, are – I do a lot of these podcasts, and people ask me, what is your hope for the evangelical movement? Two things I want to say. First of all, I never have called myself an evangelical. That's not just me you know, lately being appalled at what's happening and bailing out on it. I simply never did. I was a Jesus freak charismatic, and we didn't call ourselves evangelicals. Evangelicals were Baptists and folks like that. We were right. whatever we were. Um, so I've never called myself that. Um, I've always felt somewhat removed from that. But, but still, I know that world. And when people ask me what hope do I have for the evangelical movement in America— I don't have any. I mean, I, I think I think it's I think it's doomed. I think it's a catastrophe that it's not going to recover from. Mm-hmm. I think I think really the hope is that people would abandon it. Mm-hmm. But but the but the it comes with the price of a lot of people can't seem to negotiate how to abandon evangelicalism without abandoning Christian faith, yeah, which problem. is a which is a strange phenomenon. I meet duns all the time that are, you know, I said, well, how come you're so done with the church? And they, and they go off on evangelicalism. I said, well, you know, there's, that's just one stream of the church. Mm-hmm. You've got Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, mainline Protestant, Pentecostal. I mean, there's, there, there are other options than being evangelical. Okay, so I'm totally well, you're, you're, with yeah. you on all that, and I think you put it way, way, very, very well, and it's given me even reinforcements and other thoughts and questions I have. I want to do a little bit of that, and then I want to push past where you are 
and even maybe push back against you from the other side, if okay. if, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Um, because just naturally, I resonate with everything you're saying. So I'm going to try and explore and this, some And this is too. political theology, and I'll just be upfront. Political theology is, for me, the most difficult. It seems like you're walking a razor-thin line. Right. On one side is, is quietism and sort of an aloof, uh, just, you know— trying to occupy a place of privilege and say, I don't care about politics. The other is suddenly you're sucked into either the religious right or the religious left, and you're just right. a tool uh, in political partisanship. Trying to find that, it's almost impossible to do it perfectly, I think, but we do our best. Okay, so when you talk, and I love that you are zoomed out enough and speculating about the future. It's, that's, such, that's just great territory for me. It's, it's, it's fun. Uh, so let's talk about when you said it's going to die an ugly death. Let's talk a, a little bit about what that looks like. To me, if especially when I'm looking at that number from that tweet, um, there's a problem here in that people are leaving evangelicalism, which means— But not sh- as fast as they're leaving mainline Protestantism, yes. which you alluded to earlier. Right, but people are leaving both and all. But the problem is yeah. when people leave things like that— um, the trend is actually toward radicalization because the people that stay are the most dedicated to the worst right. or the more uh, extreme, I, I won't yeah, say I worst, ideas. So that. as it shrinks, at some point, there might be a tenth as many, but the group will still be a large group with very extreme views. That's the part that's going to get ugly is because they're going to fight. Like the people that are doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down that are in the remaining or in that 25%, those people are certainly not going to go away. And it'll be really long and painful until even when it does die, which I'm not even predicting it dies, but it'll, there'll be a small faction group like the Amish at some point. But they will be I think you're scary. right. I, I think I think when I say die, I don't mean that it ceases to exist. I mean that it no longer occupies the the place of general religious prominence yes. in America that it occupies today. Correct. So that is a death of sorts. But it, but the fringe group is going to become an increasingly radicalized and fringe group at, during that process, which will be the scary part. I'm afraid. Yeah, although although energy comes from youth, and it's yet to be seen if evangelicalism uh, following in the wake of Trump is going to be able to sustain much youth. We'll see. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little more techno angle on that and and paint it even scarier though. <laughs> uh, so when I hear you saying that the people aren't aware. Uh, I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about technology in the future and the church mm-hmm. too. But this this is actually really work together here because when I think about technology. Um, these algorithms that we have now that are controlling our world a lot, they are more powerful yeah. than us. We see that they can They're change smarter us. Than we are. They're smarter yeah. than we are. They're powerful. And we're, we've submitted ourselves to them. And they do control yeah. us. They control what Dang. music and movies I watch pretty effectively. They change my taste. We, we like to tell ourselves that isn't true, but, but it is uh, you're true. being honest. I'm yeah, telling you, they make right. me, Spotify makes me listen to what it wants me to. And I'm glad. And it's right. <laughs> it's, but it is more powerful than me, and that's going to increase. The, an algorithm, an abstract thing, a tool, a technology, this is the, one of the myths that Christians don't get, is it can be more powerful than you. It is possible to be yeah. manipulated. It is possible to be controlled. It is possible to be brainwashed by large systems, algorithms, things that are more powerful than you. And a lot of people use this, that analogy when they speak, or a virus even, some people will call, like if you think about uh, radical Islam, for instance, it yeah. is something of an algorithm that's kind of viral in the sense that, and you see, say, that, and that's what scares me, is you said, 
it's a, a young man's thing. To, the energy comes from it. Well, here's another radical religion that's been radicalized and fringed over the years because of political things where they now naturally seek young men and radicalize them for their efforts. And it's this giant religious algorithm that probably isn't even true or real. But nonetheless, that virus, as some people would say, the radical strain well, of Islam, okay. does recruit young people in a very small amount to very bad effects. So now, it is now you're driving me into, into a dark place of speculation, which I do speculate about. I don't like to do it because people hate it so much. Well, I like it. But, but uh, <laughs> I think the future is bleak. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Uh, no, I'm being serious. Somebody's got to say know, it. First of all, I'm a believer. Uh, I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe his kingdom is world without end, but I still think the immediate future, which may mean, I don't know what, the next 50 to 200 years, is bleak. I think the human race has been lucky. I mean, what, nuclear weapons are only about 70 years old, Mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, And we've kind of kept them in check. We really have. I mean, they've been used twice. Both were egregious sins. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they've been used twice in, in war. And that was wrong um, to do, you're and, saying. Oh, yeah, that was a sin. It was a great sin. Um, I think we've just been lucky that, that early on you had two superpowers that were pretty well matched, and it was a standoff. But if, this is just technology. Yeah. This is just, you know, go to the library, and then you got to figure out how to get some uranium. But... Well, when it's biotech, it won't be. So I mean, you won't I mean need when, when it's when it's uranium. two nations, yeah. when it's five nations, when it's seven nations that have nuclear weapons. Okay, what 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 happens when eighty nations have nuclear weapons? What happens when non-nation entities right. have nuclear weapons? And I, I just see that all is just a matter of time. There there will be terrorist groups that will eventually either either obtain or develop their own nuclear weapons and they could be christian terrorist uh, groups <laughs> i, I see <laughs> right? at some point i see at some point uh violence and, and i think well, i'm just gonna slow down go for it here's the big story the bible tells in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and it's very good uh something goes wrong um you have a loss of paradise you have the birth of two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is a, is a farmer. He's harnessing agriculture. That's the, that's the origin of civilization. Yeah. Abel's a keeper of sheep. There's conflict between the agrarian and the, uh, and the nomadic herdsman. There's strife. There's murder. Cain lies to himself and God about it. He lies first to himself and says, well, he's not really my brother. He's other. He's enemy. It had to be done. It was manifest destiny. He stood in the way of my greatness, etc. Um, he ends up moving east of Eden and building the first city. This, this is the story the Bible tells. He builds the first city. So, so the architect of human civilization is also a murderer that identifies brother as other and enemy and tells himself it has to be done and kills him and hides the body. Um, this is the pattern that is replicated throughout history. Seven generations after Cain, you come across this obscure character named Lamech. And he has this little limerick. He says, uh, I have killed a man for wounding me. I have slain a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 70 times seven. 
That's the first 70 times 7 in the Bible, by the way. Jesus will take it and turn it around and use it for forgiveness and not revenge. But it begins with, with Lamech saying, my revenge will be 70 times 7. If you even look at me wrong, I'll kill you. I mean, you, you, you slap me. It's not going to be an eye for an eye for tooth for tooth. I'll kill you. Um, now things are really exponentially out of control with violence. The, the sin that brings about the phenomenon of the flood in Genesis 10 and 9, 10, 11 is, is uh, violence. No other sin is mentioned. Violence is mentioned twice. No other sin is mentioned. Now, we imagine other lurid details, other lurid sins, but they're not mentioned. It's violence. And so God is now regretting this whole project. This is the, this is the story the Bible tells. God regrets this. And God sees the great problem is violence, and what does God do? God attempts to solve the problem of violence with his own violence. Flood. And God kills everybody except one family. And it doesn't work. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is ultimate reality. I'm saying this is the story the Bible tells. That God sees the problem of violence. He seeks to solve the problem of violence with violence, which is what we do. And it doesn't work. And so God begins a new project that's going to take a lot of time. It's going to be very slow, mm-hmm. but it begins, he calls, he calls Abraham. Mm-hmm. And this leads us all the way to Jesus. And um, I think that at some point in the future that I won't live to see, um, the human race is going to have to maybe give Jesus a new hearing. That maybe he actually is the savior of the world. And there's no other way to go. Uh, If we are committed to the us versus them paradigm, and as long as my club is mightier and bigger than yours, as long as my weapons, my whatever, we're just going to continue in this death spiral of exponential violence until, you know, maybe in some, you know, post-apocalyptic post-Holocaust hellscape, somebody finds a Bible and says, hey, I found this Dang. thing called the Sermon on a Mount. We had to dig the Bible maybe, out of the trash heap just to get it going well, again. Maybe after we'll the try this. You know? Wow. So, so, I mean, maybe that won't happen. But, I don't know. There's a book, it was the last book that Rene Girard ever wrote. It's called Battling to the End. It's pretty bleak, but I think it's very important. And so I think this may be the trajectory we are on. What's important then for, well, I'll just say for me, my, my mission is to preserve the faith, to be faithful, and to help make Christianity possible for my grandchildren and their generation. Mm-hmm. I have seven grandchildren, nine and under, and really what directs what I do as a pastor is, okay, if, if my oldest grandson's nine, his name is Jude. Okay, 20 years from now, he's going to be 29. W- what do I need to do to make Christianity a viable alternative for 29-year-old Jude Zond in the year 20, what would it be, 39? Mm-hmm. Okay. So and, and it and it will yeah. it will be counterculture. It will be it will be a remnant. It will be not politically powerful. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to be willing to be a subculture, weird, different Christians of the catacombs, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So 
the problem here is I think a lot of people can get where you're coming from to some degree, but most people have this issue where they seem like if you disassemble Christianity to the level that you're at now, they tend to say, well, why not just keep disassembling? Why not just move all the way out? Why stay at all? Now it's just vague. Anything goes. You're not really saying anything. So why not because, just? So some people are going to go on past. Because Jesus. All right. So now you have to, your job is to keep me in the church because I agree with everything you said so far and I'm on my way away right. from the church currently. So right. your job now is to convince me why do I need to not just say Jesus was a good teacher, he was wise, he knew what he was talking about. I'm going to try to live my life basically like him. I don't need any of this church stuff. I'm post-Christian. I still affirm Jesus as cool and probably the best person that's ever lived and maybe there's a supernatural heaven and I do if I ever had hope in anything it would be him, but I'm just moving on with my life. I don't need any part of church anymore. Yeah, see see you're approaching it differently than I approach it. Mm-hmm. You're saying I see Jesus as a wise teacher. No. If it's not Jesus saying this stuff, I'm not even going to listen to it. Okay. Uh, I have to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, and Jesus is more than a wise teacher, or I'm not going to listen to him. For example, people, people will say that I'm a pacifist because I believe that the waging of war is incompatible with following Jesus. And I always correct him. I said, no, I'm not a pacifist. I'm a Christian. Uh, pacifism is an ethical position regarding violence that one can adopt apart from Jesus Christ, and, and people do it all the time. I, I, it may be admirable. It's certainly not me. It's not me. Left to my own ethics, my own devices, I'm going to be a violent son of a gun. <laughs> I find violence appealing. I, 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 I understand the appeal. The only reason I renounce violence is because Jesus does. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily immediately see the wisdom in it. I believe it because I believe Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That I cannot prove. I don't claim to be able to prove it. I bear witness to it. And one can believe or not believe. But I don't think we start with a wise teacher and try to bump him up a few notches and get him close to deity. I think we start with Jesus as the Son of God, mm-hmm. and that's why we give him a hearing or not. Yeah. And I'm an incorrigible Christian because of Jesus, mm-hmm. because I've, I already, it works like this. Um, I've encountered Christ. I can't prove it. I can witness to it. You can believe it or not believe it. But because of that, all of a sudden now, I have a new respect for the church because my encounter with Christ is not unmediated. It is made possible by the church. Mm -hmm. Of course, the church is a failure. The church has always been a failure. Uh, Some people may find this depressing. Some people may find hope in it. There has never been a golden age of the church. When wasn't the church always struggling and failing? And yet somehow it, mean, it, it, it endures. And the one thing that it needs to do, it continues to do, and that is somehow it passes the message of Jesus on to a next generation. Mm-hmm. Amidst all of its the sins message and of Jesus, failures though? and church. The message of Jesus is, that's let, what let's I'm just, trying to let, tease let's, out. Let's, let's, let's just say Jesus. It passes Jesus on. When I, when I, don't, I don't mean Jesus' message. I mean the message about Jesus. The person of Jesus. We, person and work. Yes, the, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because the gospel right. is not a formula of how to go to heaven when you die. It's simply the story of Jesus. 
Can all this be done apart from, I don't know, congregate, modern congregation? So, like, no, on one hand, do you not. think the, the modern churches, you say, aren't needing to be saved, or some of them are and some of them aren't? Like, the biggest mega churches out there that seem to be the way they are, you don't think fix them, for instance? Or you I'm need not to. saying we can fix anything. Mm-hmm. I'm saying uh, without the church in any form, you, without the church, Jesus is less famous than Philo of Alexandria and has less followers and worshipers. Mm-hmm. What's the minimum I mean, have form you, have of you, church? Have you, have, you, have you ever met anybody that is, says, I'm a follower of Philo of <laughs> Alexandria, I worship <laughs> him? No. Nope. And Jesus would be less significant than that without the church. Well, what's the minimum so, form of something you would call church in the way that you are talking about it that we can't lose? We can't lose the, the church. And I guess that's, I don't know if they call that uppercase or lowercase, but you know what it's I a mean. Public, not, it's a public gathering mm-hmm. of the baptized. Of the baptized. So the sacrament of baptism is, a, is, is yes. necessary or else you're not the same as you, right? You're not Christian I, unless you attend I, a congregation that does the sacraments, for instance. We're not I'm, Christian, I'm but you're not participating in the in the. You're not part no, of the church. You're not part of the church. And, and the church is a public gathering, not a private gathering. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand there are exceptional circumstances of persecution. I'm not talking about that. What I mean is, people say, "Well, I get together with my friends and we hang out and we have a meal and we talk about Jesus." I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. That's called getting together with your friends, hanging out. Mm-hmm. Having a meal and talking about Jesus, that's not church. Church is the place where you gather with people you would never gather with otherwise. It's a public gathering that whosoever will may come. It's not self-selective on the basis of friendship. Um, Without the church, here's what happens. You become a person with a hobby of thinking about Jesus. Like some people are interested in history, some people are interested in the Civil War, some people, you know, or whatever. They're interested in whatever they're interested in. They have a little hobby, a little something they read about. Uh, that's fine. You, you will have a, a personal fascination with Jesus to some extent. Uh, it's unlikely that you will pass that on to your children, and there's no doubt that your grandchildren are not going to have anything to do with it unless something intervenes in their lives. Uh, so... We need the church to successfully pass on the faith from generation to generation. I don't think it works any other way. Without church, your your kids are going to say, "Yeah, my dad he he kind of you know he liked to sit around and read books about Jesus and stuff like that." Mm-hmm. Are you a Christian? No, no, that was my dad's thing. Mm-hmm. I think ninety five percent of the time that's how that deal will go down, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I have because of because I love Jesus. I continue to gather with and as the church with all. But but I don't know. Yeah. See, I'm going to push back a little bit. Go for it. I mean, I mean, yes, I can, I can um, critique some of the most public voices of American evangelicalism because of their conflation with American nationalism and their subservience to Trump, etc. On the other hand. Man, I get around, and not just in America, but other places too. And I can tell you that in countless millions of congregations around the world, Matthew 25 is just an ordinary day where the poor are fed, where the sick are healed, where people who can't find any kind of significance anywhere else are accepted mm-hmm. and given dignity, mm-hmm. where people can sit together in a in a kind of radical equality that really isn't found anywhere else. 
I don't know what to compare the church to. I don't. Th- I think it is. I think it truly is incomparable as far as being a diverse gathering of people. Mm-hmm. It, it's. I mean, Hinduism is India, almost exclusively. Uh, Islam is much more diverse, but still, it's still largely Middle Eastern. Christianity is truly global, and it cuts across all kinds of ethnic, cultural economic, national distinctions. Uh, I I would defy someone to to describe something that's like the church. I don't think there's anything quite like the church. And yes, and and some of its most public faces at times, it's a profound disappointment. But if you kind of go underneath that and encounter these congregations doing what they do day after day after day, you find people who are finding love, acceptance, community, probably in ways they wouldn't any other way. Mm-hmm. I see uh, I see it every day. I, I mean, I I so agree with I agree with you. Uh, am you I have mute? an oh. interesting mix uh, of views there, but the problem Sorry, I was I was muted. Can I say yeah, yeah, go I, ahead. I, I agree with you except for I think all the bad issues are equal if not worse and the Sunday morning event has been lessened and uh, is, like you said, profoundly disappointing, so much so that I worked at two mega churches. I, I grew up in church. My grandfather was a pastor, and I feel like, why would I go back to something that I think is so flawed? And as much good as there is, as much as they do help the poor or, or feed the hungry, I think that at the same time, they're, they're teaching something that I believe is a skewed Jesus that isn't helpful or real. I don't want my, for example, I don't go to church right now and I haven't for a while because I don't want my son learning that Jesus. That, that, that sounds more dangerous See. than finding out about the Jesus that, that they're going to preach because it seems like the, the, what I don't know if there's any pastors anymore. I think there's preachers. I don't know if there's pastors anymore. I don't know if I don't know if pastors or, or or I don't know if preachers care about people or they care about numbers. I don't know if they care about their own words and how they sound as opposed to like actually helping people. Is that the? Re- I mean, I don't think I can say that honestly. That I think most pastors really, I, I, I really are in it specifically for the people knowing Jesus. I think that is a component. And then I think, a lot, and I mean, I'm, I'm calling out a lot of people, and of course I'm generalizing here, and I'm sure you have a, a great answer that you're about to say, but I just, it feels so exhausting to go somewhere where I think somebody, it's their job. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's calling you're anymore. You're still thinking like an evangelical. <laughs> sure, yeah, you're right about that, for sure. So you're, you're still thinking. I can tell by the vocabulary you use, you're still mostly thinking that the primary purpose of the Sunday gathering is teaching. Look, I can tell you're intelligent, you're well-read. You don't need church on Sunday morning for the purpose of instruction. You got books, podcasts, etc. What you need is a gathering in sacrament. So you pick a church, you just choose some church, where they're going to offer the sacrament of communion to you as you are, I mean, if you hear what I'm saying. Yes, yes. You walk in the door and say, yep. Well, and you find that church that offers the sacrament of communion to you as you are. And you find one of these churches that doesn't have sermons. They have an eight-minute homily. Yeah. Even if it's knuckleheaded, it's over in eight minutes. <laughs> and so you go for worship and you go for sacrament. 
And then maybe over time you make some friends. Yeah. And maybe you help them serve in the food kitchen or something like that. But evangelicals still end up thinking that the main reason we gather on Sunday is for instruction. And I don't think these people know what the hell they're talking about. I don't even agree with what they're saying. So I'm done with the church. No, you're done with evangelical mega churches. Yeah. There are a lot of other options. You're right. You're you're totally right. I think I think it's so syrupy sweet just because I've been in it for so long that it feels like uh, part of me wants to change it from the the inside. But you're saying like you would be pro people leave the evangelical megachurch and that it dies. I I mean I don't know. I'm pro. I think that's going to happen probably. Like either uh, way. Mega churches are uh, they're an interesting phenomenon. Um, they become their own denomination. I right, mean, right. they're more similar to other mega churches. There are exceptions, but yeah, um, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm not wanting you to talk bad about mega churches or or, or even other pastors. I just I feel like uh, I. Yeah, I, I think the problem I'm having is defining what does it mean for me to gather and what does that look like? Because I have tried other churches and honestly, it feels similar in the in the point of there's a, uh, you know, uh, a building, a fund for the building and the things that you need, the, a staff, all of these things seem pretty close. And I, I do agree, like I, I appreciate cert- definitely the sacraments. I do appreciate the gathering. I do want my kids to grow up around other Christians and talk about Jesus and ask the really hard questions. I just wonder that that system, and especially like even we were talking about before, like with technology and what is coming, I wonder what it's going to look like and won't it be better? Like like, like you said, like I, I could find out more about Jesus probably in 10 minutes on YouTube on a Sunday morning than going to the gathering. So you're saying the the, the gathering is inherent to understanding more about Jesus? The gathering yeah. and the sacrament. I, I don't know if that. I don't know that understanding more about Jesus is the telos, is the goal, is the. It's that you're still thinking knowledge. Uh, no, it needs to be more incarnational than that. I need to gather with other people. I need to receive the sacrament. I need to do this very unique thing called worship, where we actually deliver. We say we are worshiping. Um. Where we're not just taking in information and see, I'm getting theologically smarter. I'm knowing more and more. And, and I say this as one who has read, dear Lord, I don't know how many thousands of theological volumes. But that's not the end in itself. And that's not the primary reason for gathering on Sundays. And I think with the technology that we have and is coming, it only makes that gathering more important. Um I was I was teaching at Fresno Pacific University Seminary, and I was doing like a week long course there. And during one of the breaks, I overheard a conversation. One of the seminarians works at Starbucks, and she was saying how she was telling her friends at Starbucks that she was getting ready to go on a three day silent retreat to a monastery, and that part of this three day silent retreat is she would be turning in her phone. All, and she would have no devices, no connection with social media, the Internet for three days. And these are her secular co-workers said, oh, three days without my phone. I could never do that. I don't want to do that. I could never do that. 
I think I need to do that. I'm not so sure that we are going to so erase our actual humanity that we don't maintain an awareness that some of this technology is dangerous. No doubt. Yes. And if the church could, now I'm dreaming now, but if the church could position itself, and I don't mean it in a marketing way, but I mean in an authentic way, as a keeper of ancient wisdom and contemplative practices that can help you care well for your soul, I think then the church begins to gain a new relevance. Now, if it holds on to its culture war stuff— well, that's then, the consumerism yeah. part. It can never compete with that. Like, we want it to be consumeristically va- valid and scientifically valid. So, if those are your drivers, that you're not, those the other ones are not powerful. And, oh, but the keeping of ancient wisdom, that needs to be our priority. That doesn't describe uh, yeah, a church. No, it, 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 it can't come from that place. Yeah. It's like what I do with these prayer schools. I don't know, you know, I do a lot of prayer schools. I mean, I've been a pastor for 37 years. I understand the whole drive to gather people. I get that. I mean, I get it. Um, and I've had big churches. I mean, I've only had one church, but it's been small and it's been big, and now it's like medium. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I never set out to teach prayer schools. I learned how to pray well in a desperate bid to save my own soul, if you know what I mean by that. And I learned how to pray well. And people began to ask me to teach them to pray. I, I won't tell the whole story, but but it just one thing led to another. And first of all, it was just like the rest of our leadership team says, man, we can tell you've changed. What's going on? I said, well, I think I've learned how to pray well. And they said, well, can you teach us? I said, yeah, I can teach you. It'll take me about an hour. And I found out in trying to teach, no, it takes about five hours to teach it. And I taught them, and then word got out in the church, and the church said, well, we, you know, teach us. And I would make it hard and say, well, okay, do you promise that you will show up at 7.30 for five consecutive Wednesday mornings? Yeah, really? And you won't be late? You won't miss any? You'll be there on time at 7.30? And I made it hard, and, and, and I couldn't ever keep it small. Yeah. <laughs> people just right. want it. And, and, then, and then people heard that I did this, and they said, well, you put it online. I said, hi. I'm not going to put it online. I just I put everything online. I don't think this should be online. This is not that. This is more intimate. This is like whispering secrets. This is face to face. So no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to put it online. I don't think I should do that. It's not well, a product. Yeah, we live in Seattle. How are we going to come for five consecutive Wednesdays? I don't know. They said, well, could, if we came for a weekend, would you teach? Mm-hmm. And you now, now I just I get invitations all the time, and I go where I can and when I can. But there's something there. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is. Whether I do it at Hillsong or whether I do it at a mainline Methodist church, I don't change it. It's and it's not preaching, it's not teaching. It's it's a different sort of thing. I just sit. I try to speak quietly, um, and it doesn't really matter if I'm speaking to Charismatics, Pentecostals, Mega Church, Little Church. I don't change it, and it seems to have the same influence on people. It seems to affect people the same way. Well, there's no doubt about that, that the everything turned into a product and being consumed online is great, but who knows what is lost. So, the fo- I mean, I, I agree with you. The ancient wisdom is ancient and here for a reason. I'm hopeful that Jesus is more than ancient wisdom, but a, a living, right. resurrected person. That's my hope. That's that's what I tend to—I mean, I haven't been talked out of that. But yeah, as well, I leave this thing and say— 
I use the word post-Christian as you did, although it's a clunky term, it, that just seems inevitable. We say sometimes graduate church. I mean, the whole, all the language is clunky and crazy, but we're in a transitional time that I think we can move through as Christians with hope and dismiss everything that needs to be dismissed or try to push against it. So I really appreciate the stuff that you're doing. Um, we didn't have a time to speak much or any about your latest book, which is Postcards from Babylon. Do you have anything you would like to say about oh, that? Oh, this is just, this is my uh, urgent voice speaking to the crisis of fidelity that we have in America today. Um, I don't ever say this in the book, but in one sense, it's me speaking to my peers that had started off as radical followers of Jesus, and I've seen them turn into little more than petulant Republicans, and I'm trying to call them back. Uh, the title, I suppose, has something to do with the fact that we we need to not view America as a kind of biblical Israel, but as a kind of biblical Babylon, and then learn how to live as faithful exiles yeah. within Babylon. So, you know, uh, Jews living in Babylon and Persia in the 4th, 5th centuries B.C., and early Christians living in the Roman Empire, these are scenarios that we can relate to. And so the book is is a foray into political theology, but very much tied to our current political crisis. Interesting. Well, I hope people will check that out. And, you know, my gut feeling on all this is that people are, like, fundamentally wired the way they are, and the Jesus people and the punk rockers and the outcasty and the— you know, the people that like to be the alternative, all those outside vibe, that's what that's what we have, that's what you have. And it just, I'm, it's sad to know that something like 75% of people just want to be the regular kind of person that does what everybody does. And that's always going to yeah. be hard to deal with, but I think that's, yeah. that's the case. But I'd certainly appreciate commiserating with other outsiders <laughs> trying to affect the mainstream. I dig it. Yeah, Brian, we really appreciate you coming on today. This was, it was it was very good, very very thoughtful, and, and gave me a lot to think about as well. So we do appreciate your time for sure. All right. Well, blessings to you. You too. Well, hopefully, we'll get to talk to you again soon. Good to meet you guys. You too, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Adios. Bye. Okay, right. Brian's on. Well, we pulled it off without the pastor present. I guess that we're all without the pastor being here. Yep. We, so we talk about stuff that all we just we don't we don't. Uh, profess to know much about uh, being pastors or depression, but we'll talk about it. Oh, right? I, I'm here to talk the, about shit. I don't know. I talk out my ass, yeah, you know? Yeah. Oh, you know what, though? Sure. I also speak from the heart, though, because I have a, a pipeline from my heart to my ass. So I'm speaking out of my ass, <laughs> yes, but it's from the heart, you know? So it's heart to ass speech. Is my, That's really sweet. Right. It's not that is really sweet. It's my brain to my ass, honestly, but you probably could no. pull off heart to ass speech, but I'm more brain to ass. So, yep. you know, um, uh, that was, that was good. I did enjoy that. And we're coming up on our time, but I did have another story I wanted to share, Toby. Okay, share it. I wanted to share a BC69 workout story that just happened to me. And I'll do that in a way to promote. Ma- the Matt, BC- what is BC69? That's, that's why I brought it up. I'm going to tell you what B- the BC69 challenge is in the frame of, it is a subgroup of the Bad Christian Club. The Bad Christian Club is a giant social network of outcasts like 
me and you, if you listen to the show, obviously not social yep. outcasts, but societal edge cases and alternative, just like I was talking about with Brian. If you kind of understand that you're a little bit out of the mainstream and you're looking at it, you know, you're straddling the line, whatever that is, you know who you are. But it, the BC Club is full of people like that. Uh, and then they have subgroups and sub interest, and almost all of it's uncontrolled. And a lot of them are people that were in the BC Club at one point that aren't, but they're still in the subgroups because the relationships that they made, all that stuff. It really is a community. That is the point of the BC Club. Plus, you get podcasts every day. Anyway, one of the subgroups is BC 69 Challenge. We're doing a workout challenge, and it's only 50 or 80 people in there of subgroup that's doing that. Um, so join it. Join our workout group. Get in there, and then it'll make more sense. But the, here's the thing. So we've been working out every day. We've been eating right. We've been doing a bunch of stuff. So one of the things I've been doing is running uh, a, a lot. I've been running up hills, in, in fact. That's what exactly what my training has been. That's what I've been choosing from exercise. I live in a very hilly neighborhood. Now, stressful time. Uh, I was a little keyed up the other day. Bridget and I were fighting, and I'm out in the yard. I just took the kids to the pool, did a pool workout, was home wearing my flip-flops, which I hate wearing flip-flops, you know. So I'm standing out in the yard, and the trash truck goes by. And my wife, who I was already irritated at, <laughs> yells at me that it's trash day. Oh, and you hadn't gotten the trash out. Okay, so the trash man's in front of my house, and he's getting the one across from my house. He's p- putting it right. in, and clearly I missed it. And I, I'll yell at him before he goes. I go, ho, 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 sorry, I forgot my trash. Now, I'm probably 10 yards from him, and my trash can's probably 10 yards behind me, right there. And I says, are you trash? Or, that's what I says. Are you trash or recycle? And he goes, I'm garbage. And then he went and walked in his truck and started driving away. I was like, no, 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 I've got mine. I'm right here. And, so, you know, right after Bridget, and I was on the phone with you. I said, I got to go. That's why I had to go. Yeah, um, okay. And so I, <laughs> I'm in my flip-flops, and I run over to the trash can and, and get it and drag. It's a big trash can. It's full. It's right. trash day. And I pull it down to the yard, and the guy, uh, he drives off. He drives off. And I mean, like he yeah. saw me and he knew. And it's like, okay, it's going to take eight seconds. I'll be here. He drives off and he takes a right. He goes up the steepest hill in the neighborhood. I said, fuck you, man. I grab that trash can. I'm in my flip flops. I've got a giant trash can full of weights. <laughs> and I run as fast as I can up a steep hill, a block and a half with the trash can. And I'm angry too. I'm, ang- I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm right. not having this trash. That guy did that. My wife started yelling at me. It's probably my fault right. anyway. I mean, I am keyed up and I, I've got all the gas necessary to do it. I could just crank. Yeah. I just blast up that hill, and he—I think he probably sees me in the rearview mirror too. You know, he's like, "Oh yeah. shit!" And I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I am booking it up fast with this uh, trash can in tow. And I come around the corner, because I know he has to stop at the next house. He can't right. drive away, so I'm going to get it. I, I just know I'm going to get this done because um, I just—I just put every bit of. I just said, okay, here, this is it. Um, but it was really cool because I've been around the hill. So I got up to where he was, and he says, uh, he didn't say anything at all. But I, you know, I, you know how parking attendants are. Like sometimes when you miss the window, they have this reason, they know how to tell you. Right. No. And he drove off. Yeah, That's yeah. his protocol. But I knew if I could get to him, he couldn't stop me no matter what. So, right. um, but he was going to try to and ignore me. And I yelled again, and he wouldn't say anything. And so I didn't ask him if I could do anything. He just stops at the next one. And I bring my trash can all the way up to the thing and put it in the spot where the thing hooks up to it. I said, yeah. I, said I said, oh, sorry, I was late and just smiled, you know, like he can't, there's nothing he's going to be able to do. Like he right. can't, there's just nothing. And he looks at me as mean look and just put it dumped it in he did it didn't say a word <laughs> in it, but i just smiled and said thank you I said, 
Sorry's late. You know, like it's a mean <laughs> thing at all. But I put it where he'd had to move it out of the way to put the one that he wanted to do it right. in there. I was right. like, that's it, mister. But great success. So thank you to the wow. BC sixty nine group and challenge to give me the motivation to know that I could power through a hill even with a load and flip flops, which I've developed over the last three weeks of working out every day, which I haven't done in so long. So I'm enjoying it so oh, much. Oh yeah. And speaking of the BC Club, we got some names of the folks that are in the BC Club. I don't know if uh, uh, some of these might be even doing the BC 69 Challenge, but we got John Nettles, Axel Anza, Anza, uh, Dusty Kittle. We know D- Dusty, oh, Dusty Kittle. What's up, buddy? Uh, yeah, I know. Adam That's Irvine, Josh, Joshua Begin, uh, Colin Littlejohn, Naaman Mowry, Ben McDaniel, Douglas Johnson, Sam Leslie, and Andrew Spann. Thank you guys for being in the club. If you're not in the club, join today. It's just so much going on. We've yep. got so many different avenues of connection. Like Just like Brian Zahn just said, it's all about congregation and connection, and that's mm-hmm. what the BC Club is. Yep, four so more episodes wanna, a week, the Daily yep. Dose. Every day you get some of this. If you can handle some that's of right. this every day, you can have it. You just got to join that's the BC right. Club, make some new good friends. And nice. So that's thebcclub.com. We will see you BC Club people tomorrow. We'll see the rest of y'all yep. next week. Yep. Love you, Jay, Jay Svensson. Yeah, I miss you, Jay Svensson. Love you, buddy.